James chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we may be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Several years ago, we were away from home, and so I thought, well, I don't have to take another alarm with me. I'll just use the cell phone. And so I got thinking, well, how do I want it to ring? What do I want to wake up to? I picked a song. I think the title of it is God is Good. It goes like this. It goes, God is good all the time. The song of praise in this heart of mine. God is good. And I'll save you the rest of it. But the recording of I had on the phone is kind of upbeat and, and cheerful, just like you want it to be in the morning and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, yeah, I had to get it off there. Because I didn't, want, I didn't like getting so irritated with the goodness of God at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm not a morning person. And I, I thought, you know, I'm firmly committed to the goodness of God, but it's, when that goes off in the morning, it's just that first sound of it even is not putting the right spirit within me. So I need to do something else. So I, uh, I, I got just a very annoying recurring noise. At least then I should feel annoyed with it, right? Well, the reason I bring that up is that that's our subject matter for this morning as we look at it, is we're looking at the goodness of God. What we were looking at last time, if you remember from the last couple of weeks of the book of James, is you had people that were actually saying, you know, God's kind of in control of everything. And so when I, when I find myself tempted and having a struggle with a sin and I fall into that sin, it's really kind of God's fault because He allowed me, at least allowed if not designed for me to be facing that trial. And James is coming out and emphatically answering that and saying, absolutely not. That is not the case. God will bring and allow trials that will come into your life to strengthen you, to build you for your benefit. Temptations are not there for your benefit. They're there for your destruction. And so emphatically, last week when we looked at it, James chiming in through the ministry of the Holy Spirit within him said, you know what, absolutely not. God cannot be tempted by evil. Neither does He tempt anyone. Well, it's upon the heels of that that we come into James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And what it does, it focuses on the goodness of God. It says, God can never do, He cannot be tempted by evil, and will never tempt somebody with evil. But, you know what, every good gift and every perfect gift that we have comes down from God. And so, the point that he's making is the fact that God is good. Well, as we consider this issue of the goodness of God, through this passage, I would like to point out five characteristics that highlight His goodness. Now, the first thing that we see in highlighting God's goodness that it focuses on is His nature. Notice what it says in verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It refers to Him as the Father of lights. It reminds me of First uh, John chapter one and verse five. It says this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Same thing Jesus would would do as he came and reflected that light to us. He stood up in a huge candle lighting service one time. It would have been awesome to see that. The rabbis from back in the day say that that candle lighting service that he would have been at at that time would light up the temple and even the hillside around the temple. And it was in the midst of that that Jesus would stand up and say, I am the light of the world. 
as we look at it here this morning, that's, he, just, he describes God as the Father of light. What does it communicate to us? It communicates goodness. It kind of gives you that idea of turning the lights on, let it, let it be bright, let everything be exposed, let everything be seen for what it is because there's nothing wrong here. It's kind of the opposite of what Jesus told the people in John chapter 3. He talked about how He was the light coming into the world, but man loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because His deeds were evil. Well, God is all light. Why? Because there's no evil deeds. There's nothing to hide or to cover up. God is good. And so lights can be on full blast. You can do the white glove test. You're not going to find anything. God is good. I think it also might be alluding a little bit to creation. You know, creation also would come to the same conclusion that God is good because what is the very first thing that God created? He created light. It was the very first thing that He spoke into existence. And then if you look at uh, the unfolding days of creation, at the end of every day that God created anything, He stepped back and He took a look at it and He says, you know what? It is, it's good. And in the end, when it was all done, it is very good. And so these things all point to the, the goodness of God, but that's not the only part of His nature. But it also uh, refers to His unchanging nature. It says there, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, even within the lights that God gave us, right? He, he created light on the first day. Day four, He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars that are going to. The sun's going to shine light. The moon's going to reflect light. When you look at those things, the, the lights that God created for us to go on in an ongoing way, those have a difference, right? The Bible even points out that one star differs from another in its brightness in 1 Corinthians 15. But the point is that the lights that we have, you know what, they're, they'll, they'll fade, they'll, they'll pass, they'll shift. He even compares it to shadows, right? A, a shadow shifts. I was thinking earlier when I was a, when I was a kid uh, playing with my shadow. Right on a bright summer day, it depended on where the sun was, because when the sun's up here, obviously your shadow's straight down below you. Uh, as as the sun gets farther in the afternoon, then you'd kind of line up and man, look at how tall I am, right? Why? Because as the sun moves, your your shadow changes. God says, not with me. Shadows shift as things move. God says, I don't move. Says the same thing about Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why doesn't God change? Because He's perfect. There's no room for growth. He's already complete in everything, in every way that you can look at Him or think about it. He's, he's perfect. You know, why do, why do we change? We change because we've got plenty of room for growth. We come into this world and there's a lot we don't know. And there's a sinful nature harbored up inside of us that wants to try all kinds of things that we shouldn't be trying. And so we got a lot of room for growth in many different ways. And so as we experience life, we change, hopefully because we grow. At some point in life, we, are, we also start to experience change because we've grown up and now things are starting to kind of decay and fall apart. I'm kind of at that part of my life. Different aches and pains are there that didn't used to be there. And so there's change that we experience, one, because of growth, but God doesn't grow because He just is complete. And we experience change because we're going to start to fall apart, and God doesn't fall apart either because He's an eternal being, and so He doesn't experience that either. So God is perfect. God is good. God doesn't change. Now here's the awesome thing about that. You can count on Him. People say, well, why do we read a book? Well, I guess they don't say we. They say you. Why do you read a book 
that's thousands of years old. You don't know why? Because it was written by the author that, well, one, made me, so he knows how I tick, loved me because he sent his son to die for me, and he doesn't change. And so the things I learn in here that were true then are true now. Because God doesn't change. We can bank on that. When you stand before God someday and you base your life on the things that are found in this Word, and you stand before God, you can know how you're going to measure up as you get before God because this doesn't change because God doesn't change. That's an awesome thing. Wouldn't you hate to be involved in a game where you played this game by a certain way all the way through the game only to find out that they changed the rules at the end and now you lost? That doesn't happen with God. But the same things that He's loved but way back then, He loves now. The same things that He hated way back then, He hates now. God doesn't change. The society around tries to change and some people try to start finding reasons why God might have changed, but you can bank on it. He hasn't. And so the first thing that we see is His nature. Well, secondly, we see that God is good and it is shown to be so through His will. His will highlights the goodness of God as well. He says in verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Of His own will. If we come to Christ, if we're saved, it's, it's because God wanted us to. We've been talking about this for like weeks in our Sunday school class in the adult group is how exactly we get our minds around this amazing concept that you know what the Bible tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. In the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 12 when it's talking about Jesus coming into this world, it says that He came into this world, He came to His own and His own didn't receive Him, they rejected Him. But some people received Him. In verse 12 of chapter 1 it says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, even our salvation that we experience comes about because of the will of God. God looked upon us in favor and determined to save us from our sins and to save us from a death and an eternity without Him. And so we see he emphasizes God's will. And so the goodness of God that is shed forth in our light, and our life is, is highlighted by the fact that he chose to do it. He initiated it. He brought it to us. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 4 through 11, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So you see all the goodness that God pours into our life and uh, the salvation that He speaks of here, of bringing us into His family, is all accomplished because of his good purpose, His good will. God looking upon us in favor and determining to save us from our sins. I'm thankful for that goodness of God active 
in my life in that way. Well, there is a third way that we see it highlighted, and that is in our salvation. Because it says, of his own will, he brought us forth. What does that mean? Brought us forth. It's it's an idea of bearing a child. A woman conceives and she brings forth a child, the Bible says. And so that's what God does with us. God God brings us forth. He brings us into His family. I often like to emphasize the fact that we're brought into the family of God in two different ways when we believe in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us that we're born into the family of God through the new birth. And the Bible also tells us that we're adopted into His family as well. I don't know if you can be more securely placed in a family than being both born into that family and adopted into that family. But that's what God does with us. Now again, this is, this is God's work because we start out, we're unable to do these things. Down in our culture, down through our time, the word born again has been used to refer to all kinds of different things. You know, the kind of the peace love frisbee group back in the 60s uh, used it to describe a kind of a, a, a freer life that they were trying to experience. Uh, you'll hear people talk about being born again and maybe a second wind in their athletic career or something like that. So there's been some confusion tied around it. But you know what? Actually, even kind of where we get the phrase being born again from had some confusion <laughs> tied around it. But the reason we need to be born again and that we talk about it in those terms or like this passage does says brings us forth, that God brought us forth into his family this way, is because when we come into this world physically alive, we come into this world also spiritually dead. You know, the Bible talks about death in about three different ways. And I don't want to go through all of them right now. We've done that recently. There's a physical death where our spirit's separated from our body, but there's a spiritual death where our spirit is separated from God. We see an example of that when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And you know, we've been living outside that garden ever since. We're brought into this world separated from God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Isaiah talks about how our sins and our iniquities separate us from God. And so we we come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. That's why when we get to a conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus here in a few minutes, Jesus is going to refer to that as Nicodemus needing to be born again, to have that life. Well, for spiritually dead, as Ephesians tells us, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And how can we overcome that? Obviously, a dead person really can't do much. You can't give yourself life. And so how do we overcome that separation from God? Peter talks about the fact that that's exactly why Christ came to suffer for us. He came down here and laid down his life, paid our penalty of sin upon us, the just dying for the unjust, so that he could bring us to God. And so we were kicked out of God's presence back through Adam and Eve back in the garden. Jesus came to bring us back into God's presence. And that's what we find as we continue to work our way through Ephesians a little bit there. He starts off in chapter 2, says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news is found in verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Him, Him pouring into our life His goodness that we didn't earn. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Bible says that God takes us, He infuses life into the death, which was our experience. I remember when it happened to me, June 2nd, 1985. I had gotten pretty religious recently at that time. 
and started going to church and uh, was getting very faithful at church, trying to get some things out of my life that I knew shouldn't be there and trying to get some other things in my life that I knew should be there. But I didn't really understand the whole thing about Jesus. I knew He was God's Son. I knew we celebrated His birth at Christmas. I knew we celebrated His resurrection at Easter. But I didn't really uh, understand what exactly that had to do with me. Because I always saw myself as a pretty good. I'm a pretty good guy. Never killed anybody. Done all right. If you'd ask me, have you ever sinned? Well, yeah. But who hasn't, right? So that can't be the, the really the thing, can it? Well, it can. And so uh, I never really saw my need for Christ. I didn't realize that when He died on that cross, He was dying for me. He was laying down His life for my sins. So that if I just put my faith in Him, then I could be saved. Well, that's what Ephesians tells us that... that God does that work in us. As we already established, it's according to His will. It's God bringing us forth into His family. And what God does is He implants life in you. The, the theological term is regeneration. Is that he, gives, he puts life inside of you, spiritual life. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and He makes you alive in Christ. And He has a method. There's a, a process that that happens in. But He makes us alive in Christ. And so you see, that's our greatest need. Our greatest need is not to get religious and start keeping all the rules. Those are good things to do, but the fact of the matter is we already violated the rules. We already broke them. But when you get into James chapter 2 and verse 10, He's going to say, look, if you've kept all the rules but just broke one, you still broke the rules, you're guilty. So that, you know what we need? We need that life. And that's exactly what God's dealing with here, that salvation. He's saying, look, He brought us forth. He gave us that life. You know, when Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, in fact, Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Jerusalem. And so this is a guy that knew his Bible, or at least what they had of it at that time, which had been the whole Old Testament. This is a guy that also was very good, humanly speaking. He's a rule keeper, right? He's a rule follower. And he comes to Jesus and he says, look, I know you've got to be from God. Nobody can do the things you're doing unless God's with him. Jesus looks right at that very good man, right at that very religious man. And he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He took the religious teacher of Jerusalem and says, Nicodemus, you're not even going to make it. You are not on track. You are not going to make it. You need to be born again. Nicodemus was totally confused. What are you talking about? He says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. Peter mentioned the same thing in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter, he's just starting his letter to these people and he's just praising God, blessing God, thanking God for what He's given to them. And what has God done for him? He says He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. They buried Him. Three days later, He rose again from the dead, overcoming death on your behalf. And so that's how we get life. Jesus conquered death and is life. And He gives that life to us. He implants it within us when we experience salvation. Well, that brings us to kind of the next very important part of that. Well, how does all this happen? How does all this happen and how does it magnify the goodness of God? The goodness of God is magnified as we experience the salvation that came from Him at His will uh, through His unchanging nature. Well, the way that it happens, or the method we'll call it, 
The method that we have is also listed here within the passage. He says in verse 18, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth. It happens by the word of truth. You know, Peter, who in, in, in his epistle in the first chapter, in verse 3, was thanking God for his being born again, he recognized this same thing. In verse 23 of that same chapter, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. In other words, how do we, how do we get born again? It's through the, hearing the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God and then putting our faith in what we've heard and acting upon that faith. The Apostle Paul would tell Timothy the same thing. He says, How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, you hear the Word of God, you see what it teaches us about Christ, you put your faith in Christ, and because of His resurrection from the dead, we're saved. We're born again. I like how Peter put it where he compared it to a seed. Because he talked about the Word of God being planted in our heart. The seed of God being sowed in our heart. Jesus did the same thing in a parable in Matthew chapter 13. said a farmer goes out into his field and sows the seed. He plants the seed. But some of the seed falls among thorns and it doesn't accomplish anything. Some on the roads and the birds pick it up. Some amongst the weeds and they get choked out. But there's that seed that sinks into the good soil and it takes root and it produces fruit in your life. He's saying that's where the life is. That's where faith is. Jesus did the same thing with Nicodemus. If you go back to John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not even going to make it. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? And reminds Nicodemus of a story. There's an event back in the Old Testament where Moses is leading the children of Israel and there's a rebellion that happens. And God judges Israel for their rebellion. And the way that he judges Israel for their rebellion is he sends poisonous snakes into the camp. But you know, God always does this. God always, at the same time He deals out judgment, He always makes a way of salvation. You ever notice that? It's like even in the prophets. He'll tell the prophets to proclaim to Israel their judgment that they're going to face. They're going to get carried off into captivity because of their sin, because they reject God and they worshiped other gods. And He can't even finish telling them that and He's already telling them about how one day He's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back and I'm going to restore you and all this. It's like He just perpetually has our good at heart. When at this time with Moses, he says, okay, fiery serpents, these serpents are going to come into the camp, they're going to bite people, people are going to get sick and die. That's the judgment. Now, here's the cure. He has Moses to make a bronze serpent and wrap it around the top of his staff. It's the same thing you see on ambulances and in hospitals and stuff today. That's a symbol of healing. He says, Moses, you make a bronze serpent and you put it on your staff and you're going to lift up that staff. So here's the cure. If you get bit by one of these snakes because of your rebellion against God, you can be delivered. If you just go to where that staff is and look up at that serpent, you'll be healed. Now, obviously, a couple things have to take place for that to happen. One is the people have to hear the message that that staff is there with the serpent on it, right? They have to believe that that's the case because if you don't believe it, why go? What would looking at a snake do for you, right? So there's an element of faith. But if you hear that and you believe that and you go to that staff and they looked up, they were healed. And then Jesus reminds Nicodemus of that story and he says, you know what, Nicodemus? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Talking about the cross. And whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And so He gives them the Gospel. Now, 
The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You're born from above. That's why like in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul would say, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the, from the Word of Christ. We hear the message of salvation. We, we, we see the message that's proclaimed to us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ came to die for us who are on the outside looking in so that He could bring us in. He died for us who were dead in our trespasses and sins so that we could be alive in Christ Jesus. And that unravels the whole mystery of what exactly it means to be born again. What does it mean to be brought forth into God's family? It means that we put our faith in Him and He puts His spiritual life within us. May I should have said that the other way around. And we, hearing the Word, we trust in Him. So we're brought forth into God's family through the hearing and the believing of the message of Christ that is given to us within the Word of God. Now, lastly, there is one last thing that he points out in his goodness, and that is the result of this. What happens? What is the result of this? We've got to be careful with our interpretation here a little bit. It says that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Remember, whenever you study the Bible, it is an old book, and it was written to certain people at a certain time uh, with us in mind. And so before we understand what it means to us, we've got to always ask ourselves a question first. What did it mean to them? When they first got this message, when they first read this letter that was written to them, what did it mean to them? Well, he writes to these people and he says, you, having experienced the salvation being brought forth into God's family, you are the first fruits. Now, what does that mean? If you look back during again during the time of Moses, you look back in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus a little bit, it talks about this first fruits. This, the, the, when Israel would go out and harvest its crops, it would take the, the first and the best part of that crop, it would harvest that first, and it would come and give that to God. Now this did two things. Um, one thing it did was it showed thankfulness. They were like saying, God, we recognize that we have this produce, this crops, this prosperity. We have this because of you. And so we're going to give you the first part of it back. So we're thankful. But it also was actually a statement of faith. Because it's saying that just as we went out and picked this first part of the crop, we know that there's a whole field out there still yet to be picked. And that was the idea of the first fruits. There is more to come. Now, this is where I said we've got to be a little bit careful. Because I don't think that this applies to us in quite the same way that it applied to them. The reason is because they were right at the beginning of the church. The church was just getting started. Jesus began His church and was starting to build His church. And the church is just getting started. And so He's referring to these early believers, this first generation of believers into Christianity. And He's saying, you guys are the first fruits. Which is going to do what? Well, it's going to point them to, we're thankful. We're thankful for the salvation we have. And that they actually got to see themselves as we are the promise of more to come. Just as God worked in our hearts and lives and saved us, He's going to continue to save other people. Could you imagine what it would be like for those early disciples and those early Christians to see what it was like today with Christianity spread all over the face of the world? Well, how does that apply to us? We usually tend to look at ourselves as kind of the last fruits, don't we? Everybody's always kind of us Christians. We're always kind of, well, when's Jesus going to come back? Could be any day. Could be any time. Looking, I think actually there's still a couple things that need to take place, but you might disagree with me on that. We look at ourselves not as the first fruits. We kind of look at ourselves as a kind of the end of the procession. But you know what? Christ hasn't come back yet. I guess I, maybe we need to think about it this way. 
as long as he hasn't come back, then there is still that promise of more yet to come. And so we need to be involved in that, continuing to reach out to our friends and neighbors, continuing to reach out to our communities, and continuing to shine forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as long as we do that, God will continue to bring forth people into his family. And he will continue to do that through the ministry of the word of God as we share the word of God with other people through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so as we look at this passage, there's a lot to point out the goodness of God because God is good. He's good in his nature. He's completely light with no darkness at all. He's unchanging in that nature. He can be depended upon. We see his goodness in his will to do us good through the salvation that we experience as we take the word of God into our hearts and believe it and put our faith in Christ. And we see his goodness in the results that not only does he save us, that then the other people that we share the gospel with, he works in their hearts and brings them to that born again experience as well, drawing them into his family.